Podcast Revolution Network presents. The Way with Noah. Greetings and welcome to another edition of The Way of Noah. Um, bringing you a Friday night special. What? I had the opportunity recently to talk to someone I'm a big fan of. Like I said, in The Way of Noah, I generally get to talk to people who I highly respect. Um, some folks I'm super big fans of, and I get got to talk to recently. Um, Brian Sonnenstein, who is the co-founder of Shadowproof and also the co-host of the podcast Beyond Prisons. Um, we talk really uh, specifically about the 90s crime bill, Joe Biden's role, and this current frenzy this week of providing context. And, you know, Brian and I get into the conversation. So Brian and I just wanted to clarify a little bit from this conversation, from the conversation. Um, you know, recently uh, we referred to recent comments like right when Joe Biden had announced that he did not regret anything about his record, that he doesn't apologize for anything. Um, and he was speaking more specifically in terms of like Anita Hill and, you know, the, the allegations about him uh, uh, not not understanding, recognizing boundaries in terms of the different women that have talked about, you know, he has been inappropriate. Um, and we both, you know, talked about how this applied to the crime bill. I mean, arguably, as his general statements have been, that's possible. He was defending the crime bill up into 2016. But Brian just hit me up earlier and was like, I actually, I want to walk it back because I do believe he expressed some apology or remorse for it a couple of months ago before he was running. But again, it has only been in connection with his absolute running. I just actually have found a clip, which I tweeted out, and there's a link in the description of um, an interview with him on CNS, CN, CNBC uh, there on a train. And he talks about how he doesn't regret voting for the crime bill. Uh, Rob, Bobby Rush had, had recently said he did. And when asked the question, Biden was like, no. In fact, he ends out the segment by saying it helped restore American cities. 1994 to now, the crime bill turning 25 today. Look around at our cities. What restoration happened and at whose expense, right? Um, so I'm going to let us get right into the conversation. This is just a, it's a little bit shorter of an episode, but it really is something that needs to happen when we talk about accountability and justice. And a lot of people right now are building it up. Well, oh, Bernie Sanders voted for the crime bill. Yes, he did. And it has was widely discussed in 2015, 2016. It's going to be discussed now. And I think that the senator, you know, has explained his vote, whether or not that's a good enough reason or rationalization for folks. I, I think that's very, it's fair game, right? Anyone's record is fair game. But to try and equate someone who was the architect, who was a leader, who up until 2016 was defending this fiercely, right, as as something that was well done. I mean, it's not just the, the crime bill. It is going back to his, um, 
his time ahead of his first unsuccessful presidential campaign in 88, uh, which was also the same year we saw one of the transformative campaigns from uh, Reverend Jesse Jackson, uh, you know, as chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, um, Biden was was trying to enact legislation that would have a comprehensive approach to reducing crime. However, the mechanisms and methods that he went through to do this were really deeply ingrained and racist and um, classist in many ways, you know, notions of, you know, crime and policing and traded on tropes. We also saw this through the language and and efforts, you know, furthered by uh, then President Clinton by the time we're moving into actually talking about the 94 crime bill. But we have seen, and we're still very much living with the very real repercussions 25 years later. So it's not necessarily that in this age with the amount of activism, with the amount of vocal voices who have been really mobilizing because we're at this point now where we have people renouncing, denouncing and demanding accountability for this law because of the activism and organizing consistency of so many people over the last 25 plus years, right? Like there, this notion that everybody was doing it or everybody was 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 in love and, and wanted this to happen, and the fact that we don't actually look at the political calculus, that we don't look at the strong arming, that we don't really like dig deep and, and and look at what actually led to the passage and the coalition that stood together to actually push this through, which ushered in the modern era of mass incarceration that we now are grappling with how to dismantle, how to deconstruct, and how to make people whole. So here we are right now, we have an election cycle and making their case to the people. And quite honestly, when people spend um, nearly 40 years showing you who they are, or more than 40 years showing you who they are, you should believe them. There, I don't care how many memes of Biden, you know, and and the, and the oh Obama, and hasn't that rehabilitated him? No, because quite honestly, for any good there was of the Barack Obama presidency, and I'm not going to say be someone who says it was all bad. There is a lot of areas of critique that is necessary and that many people have provided, but Obama has some really crappy friends: Rahm Emanuel, Obama friend; Arne Duncan, Obama friend. Joe Biden, Obama friend. So Obama does not make any of these people okay on any stretch of the imagination, right? And to the, the, the problem with having surrogates, the problem with having staffers try to leverage their blackness, try to leverage their progressive credentials, which, you know, are questionable. We really need to have these conversations. And this is not about attacking him. In what world do we let someone who has failed something three times just waltz in and be given the keys to the kingdom? Like, where does that happen at besides moderate rich white man land? Like, who else gets that privilege and opportunity? Because even with all my issues with Hillary Clinton, I honestly would take her running a third time before I would take him running a fourth. Quite honestly. And not saying that I want that to happen either, but let's just be real. Like right now we have had a push. You have so many people who have spent so much time talking about how Bernie Sanders needs to step aside. And I have my own concerns and critique of Senator Sanders, but you have so many people who have spent time the last several months talking about, you know, Bernie Sanders needs to step aside for all these varying issues. Where's the cry for Joe Biden to step aside for the same reasons? I mean, he's a mediocre white man who has lost three times. Why Why are people trying, what What on earth makes them think that he will win? Why, because he's arguing with, with Trump and they're, they're talking about how they'll beat each other up? Like, we need, what we need so much, America needs Jesus so bad right now. 
Um, but this conversation with Brian, like really put into context, this whole not the whole put it into context, right? Provided context about this conversation around context and how we're actually seeing revisionist history right now in real time in 2019, that there was more honest analysis ahead of his run in 2015. And I get that having Trump in office has really shaken people up and really causing a level of anxiety, but these are not the people that we need leaving and driving the conversation because they're literally not looking at capacity building and what it takes to win a coalition. It is not focusing on Trump. It is not solely being focused on defeating Trump as the only motto because that don't, that don't, that don't, that don't move people to action. Trump is bad for tons of reasons that we can all go into, but literally building the coalition to win is about providing, you know, opportunity and actual advancement. We have a chance to actually move things forward and that's what we should be fighting and building towards. Saying that, oh, you know, just let Joe be. No, Joe Biden has a long list of things that he needs to be accountable for. And why didn't this come out before? Because he's never been a front runner. He's never been a major contender. He's been a three-time loser. And we're sitting here acting like he's Obi-Wan Kenobi and he's our only hope. Like, come on now. Seriously, Obi-Wan Kenobi didn't even make it out of the first movie. <laughs> like, Obi-Wan, old Ben Kenobi didn't even make it out of the first movie. <laughs> and so much more, right? Like, like no, I'm a, I'm a big Star Wars fan. Rest in peace, Chewbacca. Um, but, but seriously, though, when we're thinking about we're 25 years and we're looking at, you know, the harsh disparities in drug sentencing and the desperate impacts on black and Latino communities in particular, right? We're looking at three strike laws. We're I mean, we got people sitting in jail for like small amounts of drugs and they weren't even violent transactions, not even getting into whether or not violent transactions means people should be incarcerated for long periods of time or whatever. That's again, another conversation that I will have to engage with abolitionists who are the ones who actually do this work more intimately and intelligently. But to sit here and try to pretend like having someone like Joe Biden, you know, leading the country out of this period of Trump is the answer really flies in the face of all logic and is the epitome of white supremacy and white fragility on the, on, in liberal spaces. Like there's no reason why Joe Biden is the one to win. There's no indication that he actually has the acumen and political know-how to build a coalition. Like the hubris and thought that he will just step into the, the, the lost Obama coalition. It's the same thing that Hillary Clinton thought people just, thought the Obama coalition would just fall into space, all fall into place and everything would be fine. But there is a matter of trust and it doesn't matter how many polls you have. It doesn't matter how many black voters are okay with him. Trust and believe we're going to organize the hell out of this country to make sure he is not the nominee. And people are going to be hard pressed to win this election. If he is, that's not a threat. That's a promise. Because we are tired, we are tired. It's May 2019, we are tired of people who are not good for us being shoved down our throats and being told this is what we have to do just because they can drop coins and give people big salaries. That's not okay. I mean, his comments about millennials and us not knowing what it is, whether it's, debate, it's debatable whether I'm even a millennial, but like, you know, younger people today and, how, and the struggle that we have, Biden don't know nothing about our struggle. He don't, he, don't, he don't know our hustle. He not shooting the same basket as us. He don't understand what it is to be us out here in these days. Anyone, you know, I would even argue under the age of 45 on down. He don't know what it is to be us. 
and the struggles we got going on. And he don't even care. It don't matter how many of the younger folks you hire, like dude will be saying some real wavy, real reckless stuff out here. And you can't make that any better. And so, yeah, go ahead and make your case, Joe. Have your team make your case, do whatever. But this whole conversation about context and liberals really showing their racism right now and talking about how this was a good thing and, oh, the blacks wanted it. There are some articles I have actually in the description as well. Um, there is an article actually from 1994, August, a month before um, the crime bill was actually signed into law. This crime bill was signed into law September 13th, 1994. This was from August 18th. Actually, that's the day my baby was born. My Nayla. Aww. Anyway, but blacks relate on crime bill, but not without bitterness. And the article goes through, it quotes John, John Lewis. It goes through the tension within the Congressional Black Caucus and the conversations people were having and like the feeling that Democrats couldn't vote against their president because they didn't want to make him seem weak, right? Like there is a lot of machinations and stuff that went into this. There was a lot of pressure from the mayors of, of predominantly black cities, which some of them cities are, are not predominantly black anymore, have been emptied out. That's a whole nother conversation. But there is a lot more context. If we're going to talk about context, there's a lot here in terms of black respectability politics and the ways in which some folks who get into the upper echelons politically have sold the rest of our communities out. There are really deep conversations that need to happen, that must happen if we're gonna have real honest conversations about policy and quote unquote context over the rest of this cycle. And as someone pointed out, you know, Biden may think, Biden ain't out the hot seat. Can't wait to see his town hall and um, there better be some real strong hard hitting questions and he needs to be held accountable. When you have a record that spans this many decades you can't sit here and act like it's not right for you to be held accountable to that record when you literally have not changed your tune until you're now trying to run for the highest office in the land yet again, yet again. This should be like taking the bar. In some states, if you fail the bar too many times, they don't let you take it again. Or you got a petition, you got to write a really good essay explaining why you deserve it. Like Biden need to put in some work, okay? And I'm still not ready to, to accept him as a nominee, but he need to put in some work because you can't just show up like, hey, I'm that dude. I'm an old white man. I got a bunch of money. A bunch of people like me. Like, this is what's up. You have not put in, you have not put any time in just because you lucked up and got to be VP because it's not like you was VP because you added something amazing besides your old man and whiteness to the ticket. Like, let's just be honest here. Like, it's not like he was like a Dick Cheney. Dick Cheney's the devil, but apparently Joe Biden likes him just fine and they're friends. I mean, he's also friends with Lindsey Graham. He's friends with a lot of the problematic Republicans that we are finding ourselves in direct opposition with. I mean, when you are someone, like the audacity to even run, when in this past cycle, you were sitting here praising a Republican incumbent as a Democratic progressive woman was running against to unseat him. Like, what is wrong with you, my guy? Like, he lacks the, 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 the comprehension. He lacks the real understanding and strategic vision to lead. And all we're trying to do, this is like, like I wrote about an article that I wrote last week. This is MAGA for liberals. This is make America great again for liberals. They want to be able to go back into the matrix. They want to get plugged back in like Cypher and not have to deal with the, the real grittiness of the real world that the rest of us are facing. I'm trying to get to Zion, right? I'm trying to liberate Zion, make Zion free. And that is not going to happen with, with, with Joe Biden at the helm. Joe Biden going to go over there and, and, and work with the agents. He's going to be trying to get everybody plugged back into the matrix. I'm trying to go find another way and I'm going to tell the architect 
to, 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 to kiss my ass. So check out this conversation with Brian Sorensen, Sonenstein, really great conversation. Really appreciate Brian and, um, all of his commentary a lot. Stay tuned. Couple more conversations that are really amazing coming down the pipeline. Um, and I got a surprise. So if you're a Patreon, there's going to be a Saturday morning surprise. And if you're not a patron and you have not supported me, it's patreon.com slash the way with Noah. So you can check out what's happening, what's percolating and what are Noah been up to. All right. Peace. Thank you so much again for <laughs> joining me. Um, welcome to another edition of The Way of Noah. I am joined today by someone who I'm actually a real big fan of, and I'm glad that we finally got to have a meeting of the minds, uh, Brian Sonestein of Shadowproof and Beyond Prison Podcast. Thank you for joining me. Thank you, Noah. It's really great to be with you. Um, awesome. I'm just going to get right into it. You know, Joe Biden announced uh, it's been, what, a week now? And it was, you know, some people thought his announcement, the way he rolled out was great. Um, myself and many others, I'm sure you're among that that group of people who um, were not only like meh, but like just really bothered, right, by mm-hmm. the, the, the use <laughs> of the imagery, um, just really using what happened in Charlottesville and this alleged condemnation yeah. of white supremacist rhetoric and violence uh, as a part of his shtick, you know, his, his rollout in attacking Trump when he literally has done nothing in this area and from threats from people from Charlottesville who have, you know, lived and, 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 and had to rebuild in the aftermath, has never shown any interest or words or anything of support. And now we have this conversation with Biden, uh, uh, well, with people claiming that, you know, criticizing Biden for some, we talk about white supremacy, talking about the 94 crime bill um, and, and that it's not fair to, to criticize mm-hmm. him or critique him for not only being the author, being the architect of the crime bill, but also for, like, judging the language he used in defending it. Can you just talk to me a little bit about, um, you know, what you were going through when you were breaking it down about the criticism of Biden, you know, and, and the 94 crime bill? Yeah, thank you for that. Um there's a lot. There's a lot going on here. I'll start by saying the rollout, you know, as you pointed out in the, the sort of framing around uh, white supremacist violence, I think is particularly irking for the conversation that we're about to get into because uh, I think it was directly preceding his rollout because, you know, like, yes, he just announced that Joe Biden has kind of been running for just as long as practically everybody else, like, you know, there's been so much speculation and he's been asked so many times and kind of flirting with the mm-hmm. answer. And in the course of that, you know, he made clear that he has no regrets. Uh, you know, he, he's a, not apologetic for his record. Um, and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, there's no there's no contrition there. Um, and so what I think is really important, considering those two things, to remember about the 1994 crime bill or or to recognize about the 1994 crime bill is that it wasn't really about crime. Um, the bill itself was not about addressing crime. It was not about addressing mm. criminogenic issues, right? It wasn't about intervening in violence. It wasn't about any of these things. It was specifically about, you know, putting more cops on the streets, expanding uh, the infrastructure, 
and the capacity to incarcerate people by dangling money to states for prisons, uh, you know, expanding the death penalty. And I think it's through that view, what you really have is, you know, basically the Clinton era adoption of the Southern strategy, more or less, um, in effort, in an effort to compete with Republicans by stoking racist, you know, fears and resentment. Um, mm-hmm. and so, you know, like I, I, when I, when I made that comment, basically I was, so Josh Marshall, who is like a longtime liberal blogger, um, he is the editor of Talking Points Memo. And I don't want to necessarily single Josh out because he's not the only person sort of among like a more centrist moderate, uh, mm-hmm. but I guess would call themselves liberal set who are saying these things. But there's an effort to be like, well, you know, the people today, these raucous activists who are criticizing Joe Biden, they don't recognize the context in which he was making these decisions. They, you know, this was a different time. Um, there's a lot of talk about rising crime rates and, and so on and so forth. Um, and to me, I, I can't help but realize that that is an argument that we see employed time and time again uh, when we have issues of white supremacy and violence. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, I, I can't help but see it as sort of an inherently white perspective because, you know, it's, uh, you know, while certainly there was a stoking of racial resentments using crime as a proxy for race, during this time, there were also certainly extremely loud voices against the crime bill, including the NAACP and the ACLU, two organizations that are not exactly small, you know, and on the margins and weren't in the 90s. Right. Um, so, yeah, I just kind of unloaded a lot there. Um, so feel free to interrupt. Well, yeah, well, I think, and I appreciate that you know that. And also this notion that it, people say, oh, people were demanding it. People were, it's not like people were, like, out in the streets, like, begging for this particular set of legislative um, measures, right, and what, 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 what set forth what we're now, you know, 25 years later, still very much not just dealing with the repercussions of, but grappling, it's still continued enforcement in many different respects. But, you know, when you when you made the point, too, that this whole notion that it was a different time, you know, was an argument for that, that, that's used in, for only white people, right? Like, so we, we've been through this crime bill discussion in a different form with Hillary Clinton running, you know, in the last cycle mm-hmm. and Bernie Sanders having voted for it. Um, and, and, and even this conversation about it was a different time, even though Sanders, you know, voted for it, you know, people can still point to and see his comments on the record, which are which mm-hmm. contrast sharply to Biden's and with both of them running now. It's really interesting this 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 claim that it was a different time, so somehow that's excused. But I think also that whole notion that it was a different time, which is an excuse for so much of Biden's you know record and history. Yeah. And then just suppose right. what you said earlier about how he has come out himself and said. He does not have any remorse. He has no contrition. He's not apologetic for anything that he's done. It really actually strips away the argument. Like any piece, anything that might have been valid and that it was a different time, this is what people wanted, like reflectiveness. Like Bill Clinton did his whole, right. oh, what was me? It was a different time tour at the, at the outset of Hillary running. 
And we saw him fall apart, you know, subsequently in Philly um, with the protesters for yeah. um, Philly Real Justice. And so, you know, we have now have Biden running, and he was the architect, right? Like, he wasn't Hillary, who was just the first lady, you know, standing by her man, doing her part, saying things she probably shouldn't have said in defense of it. But she defended it, but she didn't legislate. You know, she wasn't a yeah. legislator. She wasn't the president. She wasn't the person who wrote it. And now here we have the person who wrote it, and people are seemingly trying to give him more of a pass in some ways or, or to deny accountability because Biden exactly. has never really had to be accountable for anything because he's always done so poorly when he runs. He never gets right. to that point. I mean, that's <laughs> what I really think is part of the conversation that's the truth, too yeah. here. I mean, so I like, also think – Yeah. oh, sorry, go ahead. I didn't mean to cut you off. No, no, no. I was just going to say, like, yeah, kicking it back over to you. Like, you know, there are these very bad things, and we have people trying to be the quote-unquote leader of the so-called free world, whatever the hell that even means anymore, if it ever meant anything, yeah. that I don't have to be a sorry or apologize for, like, we, we've had, like, countless, you know, things that have happened, whether they've been the various prison strikes we've seen, we've mm-hmm. seen, you know, the creation of 13th. That is, I mean, everyone's decrying mass incarceration these days, but Biden can sit here and be like, eh, I'm good. I sleep well at night. And that's, yeah. that's a problem. I mean, I think I think you hit the nail on the head when you said it denies accountability, because I think as a, as a rhetorical device, as an argument, it is sort of anti-critique, right? It's like anti-intellectual. There's no mm-hmm. conversation to be had if we're just going to say, well, those were the norms and uh, and not say that they were the white norms, you know, and like where, you know what I mean? Like, I just feel like uh, it it's an argument that is meant to sort of tamp out any other critique or accountability. Um and I'll point out too, you know, you raise the the example of Bernie, and yes, his his rhetoric was different. Um, but you know, a lot of folks like Bernie voted for that bill because they viewed it as a compromise. Um, and I and I think that we talk about that sometimes in the wrong way. Like I think people have been, you know, similarly to Biden, have been willing to give Bernie a pass on it as a compromise, saying, well, yeah, he voted for it for like the few good things that were in it, right? But, like, we know, or we should know by now, that, like, bipartisan compromise, especially when it comes to these issues, is, like, always super dangerous and yields, you know, horrendous results. Um, And I think you can say that as a crime bill. And, you know, sort of taking it to today, you know, we just had the First Step Act, which is obviously very different than the crime bill. I'm not trying to equate them, but you have sort of the same idea of, a compromise built around people who we are calling, uh, you know, violent people and people who we are calling nonviolent people. And, you know, in some ways I feel like the, uh, the rhetoric hasn't changed all that much. And, you know, before we jumped on the phone, I was kind of sitting here wondering, you know, if Joe Biden was still in the Senate today, would he introduce that bill? You know, would he vote for that bill? And I honestly, I'm not sure he wouldn't. You know, I, I still think that you know, that bill, if you go and you read the summary of it again, it's, you know, it's really not that out of step uh, with, with, I think, a lot of what that generation of Democrats still perceive to be, uh, you know, a, a viable response 
to what they call crime. Um, so yeah, uh, that's mm-hmm. sort of how I, I feel about it. What's, what's really interesting, cause I was just looking, you know, just thinking just what you were saying about how like this notion that everyone, because that is what's repeated by people who support those who were the major proponents, right? Well, everybody wanted it. It's like everybody was doing it, you know, the way we hear about other things from the good old days, so to speak, right? Yeah. And I just ran across a piece, um, from uh, The Nation, and the title is Nothing About the 94 Crime Bill Was Unintentional. And it was it's from April 2016, so this is during, you know, the last cycle. And it's just like, you know, they try to act like it was the accidental byproduct and everything mm-hmm. was unintentional. But when you really, like you were saying earlier, when you really do think about the way uh, uh, people were characterized, how the bill was sold, what, what, the, what the exact portions of the bill are, um, there's a quote from the article that says, to read the bill's full text today feels like stumbling upon a prophecy calling out everything that has since gone wrong with the criminal justice system, subsidies yeah. for state prison expansion, and you and I both know when we're all this great talk about, you know, mass incarceration and, and, and freeing people and prison abolition. So, so, so much conversation, most people aren't talking prison abolition. You do, though, which is, which is phenomenal. But... <laughs> So many people are so focused on the present federal prison system, right, or yeah. private prisons, but there's not as much conversation that is being happening. I mean, there are tons of there are organizers out there, whether they're incarcerated or on the outside, who do talk about issues with state prisons. And I am really thankful for all the work you all do in highlighting that. But like this subsidies for state prison and looking at the expansion of state prison, state prison is where most people are, state and local holdings are where most people are incarcerated. That is not a part of our current conversation, and that is very much intentional. <laughs> when that's yes. what they're explicitly saying, you know, um, you know, federal three strikes law, uh, removing access to ability eligibility for federal Pell Grant, um, uh, uh, mandatory minimum sentences trying, you know, children as young as 13 as adults and, and expanding the federal death penalty and so many other things. And so to say that this was just some unintentional thing when this is this is exactly what we're seeing, what we've seen over the last 24 years is exactly what they wrote into this legislation. And so here we are now with this revisionist history because Trump is so scary, you know, and I appreciate what you said about Bernie Sanders and how, like, that was a compromise vote, right? And he has his rationalizations for why he voted for it. But I, I think what you're saying is right, though, when we think about the, 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 the concerns and issues of bipartisanship in matters of justice. And even as we have now the First Step Act, which, you know, I've heard people say they hope it's not the only step. We need a second step or a third mm-hmm. step and fourth step and so on. We need a staircase. Um you know, can you talk a little bit more about that, like the dangers of, like, this whole focus on bipartisanship versus centering it in accountability and justice? Yeah. Um, and, and just to quickly, before I get to that, to respond to something you said, too, you know, another thing in the crime bill and, you know, in the conversation about how crime rates were already falling by the 90s uh, is that, you know, there was money in the crime bill to expand uh, policing of the border and to expand mm-hmm. immigration detention. Um, and the crime rates that uh, that have not dropped, you know, when we talk about the crime rate and how the crime rate was rising and the crime rate dropped, what we're talking about are violent crime for the most part. Um, but other categories of crime, uh, like drugs or immigration, those did not decline. 
Um, and, you know, I do think that there is undue focus on the federal level, but, you know, the crime rate is a function, I think, of police, of policing, basically. It's not a function of people committing crime. The rate is the, uh, is derived from the policing of the crime, right? So if you put 100,000 police officers on the ground and you build the infrastructure to hold more people on the state level, uh, you know, like you're going to see an inf- uh, impact on the crime rate in that regard. Um, so anyway, that was a tangent. <laughs> I think to get to your point about bipartisanship, yeah, I mean, this is a complicated question that I think a lot about. I think, you know, one one thing that comes to mind is that, the, you know, especially when we're talking about prisons, you have on the one hand this issue of urgency, right? Like, there are people who are and have been and who will every day as they enter prison languish in really terrible conditions. Um, and so, you know, especially as an abolitionist, I think uh, you have to keep your eye on the urgency, right? You can't just be like, well, we're going to abolish prison, so we're not going to bother, you know, with anything that has to do with conditions today and getting people out today, obviously, right? Um, but at the same time, I do think, uh, and I think where it connects to this conversation on the crime bill, is that we have a lot of cultural work to do on the left in order to make the policies uh, work in a way that we're not entrenching harm against certain groups, right? Like, you know, when you were talking earlier about how, you know, uh, there's this idea that everybody supported the crime bill and, and, you know, that wasn't true. I'll add that, you know, I think a lot of the reason why people would have supported the crime bill is because of media and politicians and organized law enforcement, uh, you know, alongside sort of like taking advantage of victim narratives to boost uh, infor- resources for law enforcement. All of those things created, you know, and bolstered these myths, these racialized myths in people's minds, you know, they, just like we all know about the Southern strategy, they use dog whistles um, and sort of hid behind crime to stoke racial resentment among white people. Um, and I really think that if we are going to attempt legislation, um, you know, I understand that you need to get Republicans on board. You know, you can't, unless the Democrats move far to the left and take over a supermajority in the government, you know, like there's, you're going to have to, I guess, make some compromises, but those compromises need to be or are shaped, I think, by our culture. And I think we need to do more uh, to sort of dispense with the myths about crime and about criminals and who they are and what they're like, uh, the racialized notions, the notions that they can't be rehabilitated, the notions that wide swaths of them really even needed to be arrested and imprisoned in the first place for whatever it is they were doing when the police caught up with them. You know what I'm saying? Like, um, I think we have this imagined idea of prisoners uh, in a lot of white America. And if we want legislation that, like I said, is not going to retrench harm, like, for instance, the First Step Act, which carved out large categories of so-called violent offenders from receiving relief, you know, we have to shift the cultural narrative and we can't ignore sort of the, the power of culture, if that makes sense. 
Yeah, absolutely. No, I really appreciate that that analysis in that way. And I think especially, you know, talking about how we build commonality with folks to pass legislation, there is this tendency with Democrats, and as we see, like, this notion that, oh, that was another time, but we're still seeing it today, whether it's, you know, the negotiation over the wall, uh, we need a right. smart wall. Exactly. So we need a we need smart border, you know, immigration, right? Like, we're, we're seeing parallels, and even some of the ways, um, just even with, you know, conversations around, you know, decriminalizing marijuana with some, with some, in some states. Mm-hmm. But really, I think a good parallel is, like, the way we see them talking about immigration and they're, they're willing to concede. Like, there's too much, there are too many concessions that are being yes. given at the expense of the marginalized and oppressed in this country, right? And so this defense with Biden being positioned as the guy, um, it really does seem so much about like a system that is really trying to hold on not only to its identity to actually to power and, and needing yeah. to have someone who is who is the epitome of everything that is so bad and so wrong that we're all working to dismantle and deconstruct and move out the way. But like this clinging to and allowing him to make these excuses and the, and the heavy defenses of him too is is a, it's not it's not like I say it's astonishing but it's troubling um, by yeah. so-called you know progressive I don't even know they're really progressive allies but people who see themselves as progressive right who are mm-hmm. saying oh we can't we can't have these conversations because they're attacks I mean you know doing this work that you've been doing. How do you continue to position and sharpen analysis with that type of ridiculous? <laughs> I don't know what else to call yeah. it. Yeah. Um, no. You know. Totally. That ridiculousness, basically. That oh, we can't say this. The fragility and ridiculousness. Like, like, how do you continue to sharpen um, analysis and critique and raise the voice on these these issues? Yeah, that's a really important question. Thank you for asking that. I think. Um, I think political education, you know, political education is something that we talk about a lot on, um, on my podcast on Beyond Prisons. And I think it's something that, especially in a lot of organizing spaces, like theory and political education is treated as like, it's too academic or we don't have time for it or, you know, it's somehow anathema to direct action. Um, and I actually think it's like, it's critically important, you know, to be able to to sort of have a framework for thinking through these issues. Um, and so I would say, you know, taking the time to do political education, I think, is an important part of doing this work. But on a more practical level, I guess, you know, for me, my approach is usually, um, you know, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of just prejudice that I don't think we recognize in our daily conversations about how we talk about people who are impacted by the justice system, even when we are trying to be empathetic, you know? Um, And so a lot of what I try to do is look out for those things and show, you know, like, for instance, with this Josh Marshall piece, like this is centering the concerns of whiteness and it is blaming the crime rate, which is another way of saying the criminals, for Joe Biden giving billions of dollars away to states for prisons. And you know what I mean? Like, um, and so I think that, you know, that's, that's a big part of it. And in doing so, 
recognizing and reaffirming the humanity uh, of people who are impacted by the system, not seeing them as others, um, and sort of trying to just pick apart the myth. Um, and, you know, I think, yeah, I just, I think the humanity of prisoners is, is really what it sort of boils down to. I think we see them as fundamentally different from ourselves, um, and it excuses all kinds of violence. And, and I guess that's one of the last points I'll make quickly um, on the subject is that a lot of these analysis, a, a lot of these analyses, the, there's no placement of state violence in them, right? Like, we talk about violent crime, we talk about this and that, but we don't ever situate into that narrative the the state violence, you know, the police, uh, austerity, um, you know, lack of access to clean food and water and education, um, and how that shapes the situations in which, you know, crime arises and, and in which we decide who we're going to police and surveil uh, for those crimes. Um, and who we're going to do so more heavily. You know, we create the conditions uh, that I think a lot of times we like to pretend is like a more of a personal responsibility issue. Um, and so I think that's another important part of it. Um, yeah, I had one more thing to say, and I think I lost my train of thought. So I'll leave it there. <laughs> oh, no, you're fine. No, I thought that was great. But so just thinking thinking to like the ongoing work in terms of like uh the various prison strikes that have occurred recently in the past few years, um, you know, just thinking about in context of, of getting people understanding more about, about what prison abolition even is and thinking about like this ninety four crime bill, like, you know, people I like, oh that was so long ago, but like we talked about, you know, we still have people who are incarcerated who are definitely living with the effects of something that was passed 25 years ago, we still have policies, we still have laws and legislation on the books that are directly impacting people still continuously now. Like the whole way policing and incarceration is done today uh, in 2019, you know, goes right back to the early 90s, late 80s, and these different policies and procedures that were being heavily promoted and, and, and driven things that Biden has no remorse or apology for. Like, so now, like, what what level of accountability can be, or not can be, what's not, not even what's possible, but what should people be pushing for now in 2019, particularly around this issue? Because it's going to continue to be a conversation in yet another mm-hmm. presidential election cycle. <clears throat> but the whole Trump is bad moves there, like, like, how do we both push for accountability and analysis on meaningful analysis on this issue while also dealing with the Trump is bad conversation as well? Oh, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> it is one of the questions. <laughs> <right>? <laughs> and, um, and yeah, just it came back to me in, in you asking this question. What I was going to say is that there, you know, there is an, an important aspect to understanding this is there there is a direct, unbroken historical lineage between the present day and you know Reconstruction, basically, and slavery. Um, and so I think knowing that and sort of watching the evolution over the decades 
helps you keep the past in the present and help it help you keep it up front, you know, and, and so you don't start to think that, oh, this actually is about it's just crime, this idea of crime, you know, when it's as opposed to like a racialized notion. But what do we I mean, what do we do in terms of accountability? That's a, I mean, that's a tough question. I don't know. Uh, you know, like I believe that accountability is, you know, if we're talking about that in particular, I think it's a process that involves um, a level of taking responsibility and a level of reparations. And I don't know if uh, we can reasonably expect somebody like Joe Biden to ever do that, you know, um, and that's really fucked up and sad. Oh, sorry, I don't know if I can swear. Um, but, you know, I, I don't know. I think in terms of how do we fight back, though, you know, I think we have to insist that we have a conversation on the crime bill. We have to insist that these things that happened back then, uh, you know, we talk about their material consequences now. Otherwise, you know, like we were saying earlier, there's all kinds of things that we're doing today that, you know, I don't want to hear in 25 years that it was a different time, you know? Um, you know, like the, the detaining children that we've been doing for the last one, two decades uh, in immigration prisons, um, you know, like I, I just, I feel like we need to have frank conversations about these things and difficult conversations and not feed ground to people like Josh Marshall, who would just like to put the past behind them and to, you know, look forward and not backwards. Um, and, uh, you know, and at the same time, you know, just, I guess, repeating myself a little bit, I really do think that we have a lot of cultural work to do on the left and a lot of political education to do, and we need to take it seriously. Um, because I don't know if you can mount a meaningful opposition to this this entrenched kind of rhetoric. I mean, if you really think about it, I mean it's it's terrible and and mind-boggling how white supremacy can operate using a completely different coded lexicon, right? And like we need to have, you know, like that people can talk about crime and they can talk about welfare and that everybody knows what they're talking about, but they don't have to say it, you know? I think that that is something that we don't appreciate enough. And if we're really going to mount a defense against it, I think we have to have like a real analysis of violence and the state violence and that we need to believe that our fellow Americans, and I do believe, um, will be receptive to that. You know, obviously not everybody. And frankly, we don't need a majority to win uh, power, to exercise power. We just, you know, I, I think we need to have pardon me, we need to have a, an alternative narrative. Um, and I think that that is a historical narrative um, that sort of tells Americans that the story that they've been sold for quite a long time on these issues is false. Um, and I think in unlocking that box, you know, I, I have to tell you that doing the podcast on prison abolition, my expectation when we started was that People were going to lash out at us. We were going to get yelled at all the time. We were going to, people were going to say we were defending murderers and rapists and the Boston bombers. And you know what I mean? Like just all the kind of stuff that you hear. 
Um, and we weren't really setting out to persuade anybody. We were just wanted to talk about these things. And I've been really amazed by the number of people who message us and say, like, and I'm not even exaggerating, but say things like, you know, like, my father was a policeman, and I've always been, like, very pro-police. Um, and listening to your podcast has, you know, like, very much changed my views. And, you know, I think a lot of people, it comes from having this feeling in the pit of their stomach that, you know, the prison, there, there's something going on there, and the narrative doesn't quite stack up, even though it might make them feel secure. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know if that is a good answer for you, but I just, I think we need a countervailing narrative and not to just play defense um, on these issues. I definitely agree about having a, it, it is it is great to deconstruct and critique, but I think that's a really strong point at the end right there about having, you know, a counter-narrative, having a prevailing narrative to provide people, um, to help people understand also and educate. And I appreciate what you were saying at the very beginning of it about political education, right? Because a lot of the things we just know, we know, we believe what we believe, and that's the end of, that's the end of it. And I was just actually joking with my kids. I was like, well, now mom has more time to start studying and reading. And they're like, why? You've already been in school for however many years. But because we do, political education is really important in making sure that we are, you know, knowledgeable and informed about the, the, the conditions and issues that we're not only analyzing and discussing, but really promoting and advocating for. Um, and I think that's a really crucial point that you put in there. And I had a very interesting yeah. experience on my, on my D.C. trip. Uh, I never had this, most, this close proximity to police that wasn't uh, something happening, like whether it was some, a traffic right. stop or someone getting arrested or whatever. We were at a, I was, at, I was with a friend, and we were at a community meeting, and, you know, they had the, the area commander for the two areas that are part of the, the, the um, ward area um, there. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, he would, they were talking because my friend was, had a petition about stopping for trying to get the city to, to ban the, the procedure, the, the policy of stopping for which New York has banned it. And it was so fascinating watching his interaction with the cop and they're talking fast and talking about stop. And it's like, well, what do you mean by stopping for It's like, my dude, you know what is meant by stopping yeah. <laughs> But like, even talking, even listening to him talk to this area commander, he's like, oh, yeah, well, that's right, when he's talking about, like, what community policing means. And it's really interesting when you get these people individually. Not, not saying that everyone's like this, but I was just like, so we were having a conversation over there, like, how much how much of that, you know, is that person really actually understanding and going back mm-hmm. in? Like, they're not changing anything, though, right? So they can say these things, or they think that you're on the same side or on the same page. But I think what you were saying, though, about having a prevailing narrative, because even though, because one thing my friend pushed back on was like, well, yeah, you're agreeing with me right now, but in the meeting, like, however, whatever, you're like, yeah, so if you feel the hair stand up on your neck and you call us right away, but now you're agreeing with me that, you know, you should use all these other resources that are available with the city instead of calling police. So, like, it's just really interesting, you know, when we're out here pushing and demanding accountability to, like, like how we process and understand or not fall for people seemingly agreeing with us on a point and then not following through, you know, if that's a particular issue that we should be concerned about. Um, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, just of, really quickly, just really quickly yeah, on that, you know, I was talking to Kim, my co-host yesterday, and she said something, uh, we were having a conversation about theory and about how, uh, you know, I personally love reading theory and, 
you know, she was saying that uh, ex- she was saying that theory is the processing of other people's experiences, and I think that that Ooh. kind of, for me, like underscores mm-hmm. the importance of it, and it she makes it more difficult, I think, to dismiss as just sort of this academic, and you know, it's often framed as white, even though there's like tremendous black scholarship, uh, you know, on these issues, and obviously that have created the space for these issues. So I, I would just, you know, if there's anyone out there listening who's rolling their eyes right now at political education and sort of reading these frameworks and, and learning them, you know, these are other people working through their experiences, and I don't know a better way uh, to learn how to counter uh, what we're up against than doing that. Mm-hmm. 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 No, definitely. Well, Brian, really appreciate you for taking some time to chat with me about this today. Um, please tell everyone where they can find you and your work and your podcast. Thank you. Yeah, no, it was really wonderful to talk to you. I listen to the podcast all the time, um, and so this is great. Um, thank you. Uh, so, yeah, I am the co-founder and publisher of an independent news website called Shadowproof. Um, that's shadowproof.com um, and shadowproof.com, uh, at shadowproof.com on Twitter. Uh, you can find me, Brian Sonnenstein, at B. Sonnenstein on Twitter. Um, Beyond Prisons is the podcast. We're on iTunes and all those good places. Uh, and yet, we're at, at Beyond underscore Prison uh, on Twitter. Awesome. Amazing. Brian, again, thank you so much for making the time. I greatly appreciate you and the work that you guys do. Uh, everyone, definitely follow, subscribe to the podcast, and make sure you listen, take time to listen and share. Um because it's great that we can get out here and rattle off, oh, you were the architect of the 94 card bill. But the political education piece, I think, is so crucial, and that we should be digging in and really understanding what is going on in this area and not just simply as a tool to, uh, you know, uh, criticize someone. We should actually really be, you know, getting in touch as much as we can with with, with the substance of, of the issue that we're discussing. So definitely check out the work over at Shatterproof and certainly – when, if and when you can listen to the podcast. Um, again, one more time. Thank you, Brian. <laughs> Thank you, Anoa. Thank you so much. Have a great day.